Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this afternoon. We've been going through a a study on uh, the book of Galatians, uh, going through a a whole series. Uh, We took a short break last week as we had a special uh, Reformation Day sermon from from Simon Arscott. But we're coming back to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Uh, And I'll read through verse 15. We'll look at these verses this afternoon. And this is God's word. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit of faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. Now I would hope that we can all agree that that slavery is a terrible thing. It's one of the great evils of uh, the that, that the curse of sin has has given to our world and we still uh, struggle today to come to grips with with how we view those who took part in the slave trade of the the 18th and 19th centuries in in this country and even all that's going on we we hear the the whispers of of modern slavery don't we an evil trade that goes almost unnoticed because it's it involves taking the most vulnerable often uh, refugees and using them for evil and abusive purposes. And I think, therefore, that, that when Paul uses the language of, of slavery in order to explain what life under the law is like, then we should actually take notice of that. I don't think that he uh, is using this language lightly, neither is he using it to be uh, overly inflammatory. But actually, I think he, it underlines the seriousness of the situation that the Galatian church finds themselves in. They appear to be at a, a disagreeable crossroads between the gospel of grace on one hand and the gospel of works, which Paul says is no gospel at all. Paul's reaching the, the climax of his argument in, in this letter to the church. And in this, this chapter, he, he, he's, he's getting really to the very heart of the message. His entire thesis can, can really be seen succinctly in verse, in verse 1. He says this, that, that very simply, Jesus has set you free. So stand firm 
in that, in Christ, in the freedom you have in him. And don't slip back into the slavery of the law. And from there, we see Paul building his argument in in three points this afternoon. First of all, that grace is an absolute good. Secondly, that that grace is worth fighting for. And thirdly, that that grace takes action. So first we see that, that grace is an absolute good. This is the first moment in Paul's letter where, where he explicitly states the issue that he's been addressing for, uh, for us the last, uh, what's it been, seven weeks, eight weeks uh, of, of going through Galatians. Uh, up until now, he's made it clear that he's talking about an issue of, of uh, whether followers of Jesus need to keep the Old Testament law. But in verses 2 and 3, he states clearly which, which law specifically uh, the, Galatians were, were being trying, the, the Galatians were being told they needed to follow. He says here the issue is facing the Galatian church was, do followers of Jesus need to be circumcised? Now to our modern ears, circumcision may sound uh, like an odd thing to be arguing about or to be pushing onto a church. But in the context of the first century church, uh, you would would have uh, often a mixture of of converted uh, Jewish believers uh, and non-Jewish Gentile believers. And so for the, the Jewish believers who had, had grown up uh, learning the Old Testament and having grown up in the traditional faith of the Old Testament, they would have been more uh, susceptible to, to false teachers who would come in and want the church to, to follow, to, to take the sign of the, the covenant of God's people, circumcision. For the, the Jewish believers, this would have been an important identity marker for, for people following God. But for the Gentiles, this would have been an absolute nonsense. Uh, You could understand why it would put people off. They hadn't been raised in this culture, and the whole significance of of the act would have been lost on them. And so you have these false teachers coming into the church and and creating a division among God's people. Frankly, this isn't uh, uncommon in the church today. Even if if you haven't been uh, around the church very much, you probably still have have at some point heard uh, something of uh, of divisions that crop up from time to time in the church. They can sometimes be ugly. Uh, sometimes they can even be over ridiculous things. I once heard a, a story of a church that, that split over what, where in the building they should place a water cooler. The sad fact is that whether it's uh, in the church or outside of the church, uh, division is, is, uh, is natural to us. It's our nature to be divided over, over issues, often even unimportant things. And we see it in the world around us, don't we? Where we're often uh, divided over, over politics in particular, but in plenty of other areas. You know, over the last year or so, we've, we've been divided over uh, uh, when, uh, if, how uh, we, should, we should, should or shouldn't uh, lock down or socially distance ourselves from one another. Uh, I was just reading uh, yesterday an article about, about face coverings. And how uh, now uh, the, everyone is just basically deciding on, on their own whether they should wear a face covering or not. And uh, some experts have even suggested that face coverings, whether you, re- you, you wear one or not, uh, can reflect your political leanings. I think that's silly, but, but either way, we, we tend to be people prone to disagreements, don't we? And sometimes these d- disagreements can get quite hostile. Uh, 
Anyone on, on social media can testify to that. But whether it's inside the church or outside the church, division is, is part of our human nature. And so Paul steps into the fray of the Galatian church here, and he lays down the gauntlet, doesn't he? He says when we, when we create these barriers, when we create these divisions, when we add uh, rules that, that people have to follow to be part of the church, then we lose Jesus. We lose the very heart of the gospel. And the truth is we all desperately need the gospel. See, Paul presents this dichotomy, doesn't he, between the, the law and grace. He says that, that uh, the law leaves us hopeless because we have to keep the whole thing. If you're going to keep just one law, then you've got to keep the whole thing. And that person's cut off from Christ. In other words, the person who, who comes in and says to you, keep some aspect of the law, doesn't understand what the gospel is all about. The gospel, Paul says, is all about the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's a bit like this. If, you, if you're out for a walk in the countryside and the objective of your walk is to arrive at a pub, we'll call, we'll call the pub the Gates of Splendor. It's a great name for a pub, isn't it? I made that one up. Maybe in my retirement, I'll open the gates of splendor. Uh, but as you're, as you're on this walk, you, you come to a fork in the path. And there's two directions. There's, a, there's a, a post there with arrows, one pointing down one path marked grace. And one mar- pointing down another path marked the law. And the, the direction that, that's marked grace, you look at that path and it's, it's narrow, but it's straight. And, and, and it looks fairly easy. It's pretty flat. There may be a few streams to cross. There may be some nettle uh, along the way to navigate through. But it, it, it looks easy, almost, almost too easy, almost too good to be true. But the other path is marked law. And, and as you look at that path, you see that it, it winds its way into the rolling hills. And you may think, I'm up for a challenge. And both paths are said to lead to the same place. But as you get a ways down the, the path of the law, you, you get to the first hill. And you scale that, that first hill. And you feel pretty good about yourself. But at the top of that hill, you notice there's, there's another one. And it's a bit steeper. And so you start to climb that one because you feel pretty good about yourself. You've, you've gotten over the first hill of the law. And so you know you can tackle the next one. And so you get to the top of, of the next one and you feel, you're, you're starting to feel really tired but you still feel really good about yourself. Look at what you've accomplished. But you see before you an even steeper climb. And then you start to feel knackered. But you gotta get to the gates of splendor. And so you gotta put all your strength into the law and keeping the law. And so you're gonna, you're gonna climb this next hill and, and won't that pint taste extra good knowing that you earned it. But with every climb you find that you're getting a little bit steeper and you get a little bit more tired. And that, that each climb only leads to a steeper and rockier hill. And eventually you find yourself hanging by, by your fingertips from the side of a cliff, exhausted and unable to go on. And you realize that the thing you thought would be a good challenge, that would, would probably lead you to, 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 to everything you hoped for, and a nice pat on the back. You realize that all these things you thought were, were going to be good, I've actually led you to nothing more than, than certain death. 
See, the truth is that the, the human heart is drawn to the hills. It's what Scripture calls idolatry. Idolatry is simply anything that promises us false hope or meaning or, or value in our lives, but in the end entraps us in the cliffs. For some in the early church, their idol was their cultural identity. And they, they wanted to cling to that. And they, they wanted everyone in the church to cling to that. And they were willing to divide the church over it. For modern day people here, here in Hammersmith or, or in West London, what are our idols? They can be about anything, can't they? Our idols could be money. Pouring our time and our energy into to gaining more earthly riches. And being afraid of being generous with those things for fear of not having enough. Our idol can be our, our sexuality or, or sexual, uh, sexual freedom. Wanting to be free to identify how we want rather than how God made us. Or wanting to be free to, to feel loved in any way that seems right to us. Our idols can be family or friends, wanting to have this, this group of people that, that we can, can look to, to to affirm us and that we can point to and, and be proud of. Look at, look at what my kids did. Aren't they great? They're mine. I, I came up with them. Now, Paul warns us very adamantly that to, to look to any of these things is to lose Christ. That Christ alone offers the freedom and fulfillment that we long for and and he, he does it not by requiring things of us, but by meeting the requirements himself and offering us his righteousness only by grace through faith. See, Jesus opens the pathway to grace for us. He keeps us off the cliff of the law. We've, been, we, we, we've defined grace many times over the last few weeks, but it's very simply, it's very simply being merit that's given to us that we can't earn. In this case, it's, it's being given the righteousness of Christ that we don't deserve. But what I really want to underline for us is just how good grace is. Paul says it in verse 6, doesn't he? For, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Listen to what Paul is saying here. He is saying that we can come to Christ just as we are. We don't have to, to climb a mountain first. We don't have to try and make ourselves clean. We don't have to, to cut off a piece of flesh. All we have to do is come to Jesus knowing our need of him. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you to come and to find in him your hope and your peace. And he invites you because he loves you. And he delights to give you grace. And that's why grace is so good. That's why we're going to sing about how amazing it is in, in a few minutes. But first, there's, there's two things Paul tells us about grace. He says in our second point this afternoon that, that grace is worth fighting for. Did you notice how strongly Paul states uh, his point? He says that to allow this, this falsehood uh, about the need for circumcision to continue is like, like having a bit of yeast in your bread that spreads throughout the whole thing. Now, I, I love bread as much as the next guy. Uh, I, I actually have some bread at home that's, that's rising at the moment, I hope, if the, the, the yeast is, has taken. 
But I hope you see the, the point of this. You, you can't have a bit of yeast or a bit of baking powder in something that's not intended to be in. If you're trying to make, make a flatbread, you can't, put, you can't put yeast in it. It's going to rise. It's going to change the character of it. It spreads through everything. If you, if you, get, if you get yeast in a, in, in, in a, a malted beverage, that it's going to become beer. Which, yeah, okay, this is probably a bad illustration from Paul because those are all things we like, but, but he's using it in a negative. Let's make that really clear, right? Uh, he, he's saying that this, is, that, that, that this spreads throughout the whole, of the, of the, the, the whole substance and changes it. He's saying this is a, a watershed issue for the church and for our salvation, this, this view of the law. He says you can't, you can't sort of pick and choose what, what practices you want to have in, in, uh, in, in the church or even, even in your personal walk with Christ. We can't sort of go, well, you know, I like this sort of ceremony or this Old Testament law, so I'll, I'll take that. Because it just makes me feel closer to God. But that one over there, I'll, I'll leave because I just don't feel like doing it. He says, if you're going to have the law, you've got to have the whole law. But, so why would you want any of it? He says, this is a watershed issue. This is a watershed issue. You can't add things in that Christ hasn't prescribed and to do so is to change the whole nature of your relationship with Jesus. This is a big deal. In fact, Paul gets downright belligerent, doesn't he, in verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yes, this is Paul's uh, less than subtle play on words, circumcision and emasculation. I, we won't say any more about it. But the point is that, that this is a huge deal. Big enough for Paul to, to, to talk about emasculation. Why is Paul so passionate about this point? Well, it's because he understands what's at stake, doesn't he? This isn't a battle over, over different philosophies. This isn't a, a, a battle over different styles of worship. This isn't a, a, a battle over, you know, uh, over do we, do we uh, just like to do yoga or not? Or, or should we have, have uh, you know, whatever. He says that, that, that this is a battle over truth that impacts on our eternal salvation. That's why Paul won't let it go. That's why he can't sit there and just say, well, everyone's different and has different needs and connects with God in different ways. So let's just not pass judgment. No, Paul, Paul passes judgment. He judges and he judges very harshly. Because he understands that the, the souls of the Galatians are at stake here. That, that by adding requirements to their salvation, by pushing them into the law, they aren't only dividing the church, but they are separating themselves from Christ, who is their only hope for salvation. And so Paul is calling the faithful in the church to take this very seriously. He calls them in verse 10 to discipline the people who are trying to lead them astray. He says, I, I hope they'll bear the consequence for the, the lies that they're spreading. And in this, we see the, the seriousness and the importance of what, what we call church discipline. Paul writes about it in more detail in other places. But he's calling the leaders of this church to take a stand for the truth of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And that's the role of the elders in a church. I know we're all pretty new to Grace Church, we, but we're, uh, we're what's called a Presbyterian church. 
and, and Presbyterian is, is actually just a word that means, that means elder. It means that we're, we're led by men appointed to, to care for the congregation and that we're accountable to other elders in other churches as well. As a minister, I'm an elder in this church. We, at this point in time, don't have any other elders. Uh, so we have what, we're, what are called borrowed elders. I, I mentioned Richard earlier, and he was here a couple weeks ago preaching. Uh, and these are men who, who will turn up from time to time. They're, part, they're elders in other churches, but they'll turn up from time to time to encourage us, uh, to help us, to, and to hold us accountable. And part of their role is to make sure that, that what I'm teaching and what I'm preaching is, in fact, the truth of Scripture. And if I ever stray from the truth, if I were to say, for example, uh, you're made right with God through faith in Jesus and eating a dippy egg with soldiers at least three times a week, if I were to say something as ridiculous as that or, or something even that might sound a little more serious than that, then you should actually call up one of these men. You should call Richard and tell them right away. And those men would turn up and they would, they would rebuke me. And they would correct me for, for telling you lies that aren't in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that says you should eat dippy eggs and soldiers three, three times a week. Although it does sound like fun. But it may sound awkward and, and hard for you to, to, to think about calling somebody and, and, and holding me accountable for the things that I'm teaching. In some cases, it might even feel a bit mean, like Paul saying these false teachers ought to, to emasculate themselves. But the reason for this, this discipline and accountability is because if there's anything that's worth fighting for, it is the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. If there's anything that's worth holding fast to, it's the truth of grace through Christ Jesus. Grace that says you only need Christ and, and nothing else to make you right with a holy God. Grace that says Jesus is sufficient and enough to cover your sins. And that that's a wonderful and freeing truth. In fact, it's the only freeing truth. The law is powerless to save you or to free you. And so you may be asking yourself, well, then what's the point of the law? If I have grace, then... I can just do whatever I want, can't I? Well, in our third point this afternoon, we see that the, the answer to that is, is actually no, that, that grace actually constrains and, and, and creates a, an obligation on us in a positive way, in a, in a way the law never could, actually. And so that's our third point this afternoon, that, that grace takes action. Paul uh, actually points to a part of the law that, that we're meant to keep but for a very different reason than, than we might think. Look at verses 13 through 15 again. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Now this is a subtle point, but it's a really important point for us to get and to understand what Paul's saying here. He says, you're free from the law. Now keep the heart of the law. Did you notice that? He says, you're free from the law. Now keep the heart of it. The heart of the law is not ceremony. It's not physical identity. 
but it is actually love for God and for others. Paul is talking about a, a shift in our motives. Uh, Tim Keller says the, the reason so many people say if I, I, if I believe the gospel, I'd live any way I want is because the only motivation for obedience that those people know is, is fear of consequences. See, that's how most of us think about the law. It's transactional, isn't it? I keep this rule so that God will love me. Or I keep this rule so that God doesn't zap me and punish me. You see, the difference between a law person and a grace person is that a law person maybe, for example, looks at a poor person, the, the beggar in the street, and says, I'm going to help this, this poor person because I want to be a good person. And I don't want the consequences of being considered a bad person. And I want God to see that, that I care about the poor. And I, I, if you're religious, you might add, I, I want God to see that I'm, I'm trying to be a good person so that he'll, he'll love me. On the other hand, a grace person says, I want to help this poor person because a person in poverty is a person who has intrinsic value because they were created in the image of God, like me. And God has loved me in the poverty of my sin. And so I can and should love others the way he has loved me. <coughs> Excuse me. You see the differences between being transactional versus showing real love for another person, isn't it? A transactional approach to the law is incredibly dehumanizing. It looks at a person and says, you're a means to an end. It says that you're only here to make me look better. Whereas a real love for another person says that, that you're valuable because of, of who God made you to be. And Paul says that this should actually challenge us as a congregation. I mean, he's actually applying the gospel to Grace Church Hammersmith. He says that, that the grace of Christ teaches us how to love one another properly by causing us to think of ourselves less and to value others more. And that has to be what defines our fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be God's people in Christ, then Grace Church Hammersmith has to be a church that's committed to the truth of the gospel first and to allow that truth to lead us into a real and impactful love for one another. A love that people can, can feel and experience when they, they walk through the door and the way that we speak to them and the way that we treat them. A love that's, that's there to tear down barriers to the gospel and not to add unnecessary things to, to people to, for people to do in order for them to, to belong to our fellowship. We have to be a people that points people to the grace of Christ Jesus as the greatest and most wonderful thing in all the world. See, that's the vision Paul gives us for this little church plant. To be a church where we love others as, as we love ourselves. Not one that creates division and devours others, but that points everyone to Jesus. Because Jesus is for everyone who's willing to come to him by faith and trusting in his grace. We're going to sing uh, about this amazing grace in a moment. The old song that was written by, by a former slave trader. The very thing that we said at the start of the sermon was, was so evil and deplorable. And in, in many ways, the song and the, the story of, of 
how it was written is a beautiful illustration of the, the real power of God's amazing grace. It's powerful enough to, to bring a man who, who sold his fellow man for profit to his knees and to, to call him out of that life into one of service for, for Christ Jesus. And you see, that's the power of the real gospel. It's something that the law can never do. The gospel binds us to the love of God through Christ Jesus, our loving Savior. And that's the power of his grace in action through Christ Jesus. Let us pray.